0: Matt, welcome to the War Room.
1: Thanks, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, um, well, you have a fascinating book, Goliath: A Hundred-Year uh, War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. But I have to ask—I was checking out your Twitter profile this morning, uh, and you were talking a little bit about the Live Golf PGA deal, and you had a—you had kind of a hot take. So this won't be out for probably two weeks, three weeks. But you were uh, kind of bemoaning some of the. Uh, the early reporting on the deal. So give you a chance to be prophetic here and say what you think is going to happen. I
1: just, I don't think this deal is going to go through and I don't think it's intended to go through. Um, This is like crazy. Um, It is, you know, you have in the U S you have two golf leagues, you have the PGA and live live golf, and they're going to merge. And that is a merger to monopoly. It's just crazy. Like, that's just wildly illegal. Um, no, I mean, I do antitrust stuff, right? And there are laws against, you know, the Clayton Acts law passed in 1913, updated in 1950. The, it says that mergers that may substantially lessen competition are illegal. And there's a lot of debate about what may substantially lessen competition is. But, you know, that debate is in kind of like the gray area when you're talking about, well, there's five firms in the industry and they're merging to four, or there's like a customer is buying a supplier and, you know, maybe there's going to be some anti-competitive action or something, but like, there's no gray area when it's two firms trying to become one monopoly. That's, that's just not like, that's just illegal. Like there's no, it's a comical. And the, the head of the PGA just said well this is great cuz we get to take our competitor out like publicly said that like that's that's just you don't say that that's just like i like to com- i'm going to commit the crimes right that's what he just said um effectively and not only that but when they were working this deal they didn't talk to an antitrust lawyer and that's just cr- weird right to 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 do a merger of two firms in an industry to one and not talk to an antitrust lawyer to see if it's legal, or if there's even any case to argue that it might be legal, so I don't think that they intend for this deal to go through. Uh, I think that they, for whatever reason, are trying to distract from something else. I can't imagine that this deal goes through. Actually, I, I mean, I can imagine it. Who knows? You know, so I get some random judge, um, unless or, you know, it, unless there's some other uh mechanism like let's say they go to congress and they get an exemption from the antitrust laws but that would take an act of congress i just don't see how there's any way that this deal doesn't get challenged the other thing is that it's not just a u.s deal it can get challenged in england it can get challenged in europe and i don't i don't know why anybody would look at this and say this is a legal murder and now if presumably, I guess you could say, well, the rule of law is, does, is not a thing. So I guess they'll move it through anyway. That you know, I guess I could see that happening. But it's just like a, every antitrust lawyer that I know and follow, and I'm talking about from the most deferential to corporate power to the most aggressive, are all saying this deal is crazy. So that's kind of like, I'm just shocked that that anybody's reporting this deal as if it's a real thing.
0: Um, help me understand from the standpoint: the PJ is a nonprofit. Does that factor into anything? Does that change antitrust at all? No. Okay, so the not so just this, this for antitrust perspectives, um, nonprofits are treated similar, I guess.
1: Uh, it, they, there there can be some differences in terms of jurisdiction, but um, like for example, that the Federal Trade Commission doesn't have jurisdiction over hospitals that are nonprofits in certain ways. In other ways, they do. But generally speaking, you don't get an exemption just because you're a nonprofit. I got you. Okay. And the okay. the DOJ was already investigating the um, PGA for. You know trying to unlawfully ward off their competitor live golf and live golf and the pga were already engaged in a bitter antitrust suit so antitrust does apply to them i mean the nfl i believe is a non-profit and they have you know they have antitrust issues all the time
0: okay well i, I am not an antitrust guy at all i'm just more curious um
1: no no it's a it's a good question
0: yeah um, so, so- Okay. I, I wanted to talk about the book obviously but I, I saw your i saw the the breaking news and we kind of following the story um it, it's interesting just kind of the the conversation around uh the saudis and Liv and and the whole thing and um but um i saw i saw your tweet this morning so thanks for that information we'll we'll see how it plays out for sure um okay so let's go back to maybe a little bit about your background why you got interested in the things that you you cover now and then we'll talk about Uh, your book and your newsletter kind of unpack some of those things.
1: Sure. Sounds good.
0: So, yeah. So, so what is, so what did get you interested in kind of this studying these large economic things, monopolies stuff like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was just like your normie, uh, your sort of standard, like politically interested, annoying activist um, Mm -hmm. and into in the mid two thousands. And, you know, I didn't like Bush. I didn't like the war in Iraq, that kind of thing. And then I, um, I was, I got, I was in a, uh, an accounting software firm, and I was. The war in Iraq happened, and I was like, this seems really, uh, like a problem. And I got interested in politics, and then eventually found my way uh, where I was working for a member of Congress in 2009 during the financial crisis, and, I was, I'm a Democrat, so I thought, well, cool, the Democrats we're gonna, we're gonna try to make set things right. This financial crisis seems bad and instead of doing that um we uh we consolidated wealth and power in response to a crisis fostered by the consolidation of wealth and power and i thought this is a weird thing to do why did we do that right and i knew a bunch of people who had worked in the administration and in congress and they weren't corrupt they just legitimately thought that consolidating wealth and, and power was the right thing to do and i so i started to try to understand um the philosophy behind that idea because it was i mean i'm a democrat but it was in it's in both parties right sure and that led me to do a bunch of when i don't know the answer to something i start to um i look at history and try to understand the roots of um the roots of of our political choices and it led me to to go back and um look at this old tradition in American politics of being suspicious of consolidated political and economic power, right? Suspicion of Wall Street, suspicion of big corporations, the desire to have small firms and entrepreneurs do things. Um, That was an old populist idea that you can go back to the 1600s in England, or you could find it in the 1700s. You could find it in the 1880s among farmers and merchants and fear of railroads. I mean, you could find it in the 1950s. You could go back and list this fear and suspicion of consolidated financial power, the way of you know business people fearing monopolists, uh, labor feeling fearing monopolists. That was this old tradition that we forgot about in the 1970s and 80s. And so by the time this financial crisis happened, which was uh, caused by too big to fail banks, When we looked at the problem writ large, we did not know much about this old tradition. And we were just like what our people said, you know, what Obama thought, what Geithner thought, what a lot of our, you know, what a lot of the Republicans thought and that, you know, that Chris Dodd. And so the people that restructured the response to the crisis was, oh my gosh, we need to find the experts to fix this technical problem instead of recognizing what the financial crisis really was, which was a political crisis born of too much consolidated financial power. And so they said, well, we need to go talk to the experts. Who are the experts? Well, the experts are the people in the big banks, because who knows more about banking than the head of Goldman Sachs and people at the Federal Reserve and people at Treasury. And let's talk to them and figure out what to do. And oh, as it turns out, all of those people said, well, what we need to do is consolidate more financial power and then put a regulatory overlay on top of it. So we'll we'll have five big banks and then we'll regulate them more aggressively. And the smaller banks, we don't really care about them because they don't matter. And that was true, not just with the banks. But like when I started to look at the rest of the economy, as it turns out, we have we had consolidated power across the whole economy so it wasn't just banks it was things like airlines you know where we used to have dozens of airlines and now we have four main trunk airlines and that was largely a result of policy because we allowed mergers or if you look at you know um software industry or search or social networking or um pharmaceutical benefit managers or hospitals or, you know, mail sorting software or peanut butter, or whatever it is, like what you will find, semiconductors, what you will find is the same trends, which are a view that you need to consolidate corporate assets because that is more efficient and better for consumers. And uh, that that's the philosophy that our policymakers pursued Really, since the nineteen uh, late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, and the result is this economy where you have too big to fail institutions all across the board. You have less small business formation. You have lower wages. You have um, more regional inequality. You have lots of shortages. You have effectively sovietized the economy because that's what a centralized centralization of financial power means. It's you're you're putting decision making into the hands of a small group of people who, however well meaning, um, are just going to screw things up because they're not close to the people that are using the systems that they're controlling. So you could see this with Facebook, just a story today about Facebook, how accidentally Instagram, Instagram's algorithm has promoted a network of pedophiles um, who now like sell these this sorted material to each other. It's not like anybody at Facebook was saying, hey, let's promote pedophilia. They're just too big. They're, you know, and and that is a common problem when you have institutions that are too just too big um and you could find this in every you know every too big institution they're just they're just unmanageable and that's a result of policy like we chose to consolidate power because we thought well experts are better at running things and so i got interested in that because of the financial crisis and then you know a group of us uncovered this dormant tradition and all of these dormant lit, uh, legal tools to address it—that would be, um, you know, antitrust would be the tip of the spear. That's the body of law that's designed to like look at industrial power and markets. But, uh, but there are a bunch of other areas of law that are about structuring markets, from you know securities law to bank law to bankruptcy law to, you know, uh, patents and things like that. And so, looking re-looking at at kind of how we understand law. And the point of law, uh, particularly around uh, structuring markets, is kind of like what I do. It's kind of what this new anti-monopoly movement um, is is focused on. But we're reaching back to, you know, a four hundred year Anglo-American legal tradition of addressing concentrations of wealth and power, um, and trying to to decentralize power so we have a a, a, a vibrant, productive. Um, society where commerce is is free and fair, and there's lots of businesses and stuff like that.
0: Okay, and so you, you mentioned that you're a Democrat. Not for you, for your perspective, I'm a Libertarian, so we can set the the parameters there. Uh, so, um, when you looked at the, the the financial crisis, the banking crisis, you look at these these things, and you you said something to me that um, makes a lot of sense, and, and it gets frustrating that it seems to get overlooked quite often. Is when you go to the banks for their opinion on, on how to do things, uh, or you mentioned Facebook. I remember, I don't know, two years ago, Zuckerberg was in front of Congress, and they said, would you help give us guidelines on how to solve this problem, whatever it was? I can't remember their, the, the hearing it was over. He said, of course. And I thought, well, obviously, he would love to give guidelines on how to solve social media problems. And oh, by the way, those guidelines by their nature, will probably be, be restrictive to other people entering the market. How do you solve the problem of going to the people whose best interest it is to make sure that the problem benefits them the most, even if they, they are being well-meaning? I'm sorry. So, so you,
1: I, I'm not going to defend members of Congress asking Mark Zuckerberg for ideas on regulation. Like that's not a that's a bad thing. Um, I don't think it's a problem for Facebook to say, here's how we think social media should be regulated. I think it's a, it's just a series of choices about what to do about those rules. Um, nor do I think that Congress particularly cares what Mark Zuckerberg says. Um, if you're, you know, what, what I guess what I would say is like markets, there is a general belief. I think what libertarians want good, good, well, you know, good faith libertarians are frustrated at the kind of fusion of corporate and government power Mm -hmm. and they they want um they believe i think legitimately that like the way one core way that human beings relate to one another is through commerce is through trading and you want to allow people to engage in that freely without coercion is that a fair is that fair
0: that would be one thing yes for sure
1: um and that's an that's a fundamental aspect of liberty it's not the only part of liberty but mm-hmm. it's a fundamental part of liberty right yes um and i think the 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 problem that we have to tackle is the where i think libertarians go wrong is they consider markets as kind of like systems that just exist and then you have this thing called government that comes in and does stuff to the markets or doesn't do stuff to the markets, right? And I don't think that's actually how, mar- what markets are. Markets are political institutions. Like there is no such thing as a deregulated market. There is no such thing as a market where government is not heavily involved. Um, markets are based on, and have always been based. You go back to, the medieval times. Um, the, the corporate charter, is a state charter. Uh, property rights are defined by the state by society um rules like is there fraud deception or is that legal or not like these are fundamental aspects of crafting markets so the question isn't like whether government is going to be involved in structuring markets the question is what do you what does a market look like right like what do you want a market to do how do we want to embed justice in this market structure so you could have like a farmers market um with like Posted prices, I think people tend to like, I mean, socialists have the same problem. Like socialists are like, we think that we shouldn't, markets are bad, but it's like they all, you know, none of them has an issue with a farmer's market. But like you could have a derivatives market where fraud is legal and it would be really bad. I don't think anybody alike would would think that's a good thing. And or you could have a slave market, right? Where you're auctioning human flesh. That's another form of a market. All three of those have very different moral valences. And so, and all three of which are very, you know, they're structured politically in different ways that there were, someone is setting rules, the society is setting rules undergirding each of those markets. So the question isn't so much is government setting rules. The question is politically, what, how are we going to set up market rules? How are we going to set those rules up? And when you allow monopolies, monopolization is a particular form of structuring a market. What you're effectively doing is you're saying, We're going to have a private, a a private monopoly. We're going to have a private government that is going to set the terms and and conditions for people who have to deal in this branch of trade or service. And that private monopolist is going to set the terms, set the prices, um, choose who gets to be in this market and who doesn't. And I think that that is something that libertarians are suspicious of. And everybody is suspicious of because we're suspicious of concentrations of power. And so the question is then, what do you do to address a market structure where we have allowed monopolization? And that's where, like, that's, I think, the, that's the political question to answer. And I I think the, well, we won't do anything politically is an unsatisfying answer.
0: Yeah, I think. Uh, Chomsky calls it uh state capitalism, is what everyone has. He goes, it, It's just how severe it is, you know, whether it's Chinese or North Korean on the far extreme to maybe the US on the other, but it's all some blend of state capitalism because there is this. Well, I,
1: I mean, it, it, it go, I, I think that's right, but but you know, to Chomsky's like you could call it that if you want to, but I, I, so you, know, you go back like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or. Frederick Douglass or go back to anyone <laughs> in our, throughout our history and they would all like the idea that there's some sort of, there could be some form of trading without the state involved is like that. That's a weird idea that doesn't make any sense. And so you could find anybody throughout history you're going to find would be like, yeah, of course, trading and the state are, you know, that's it. They're intimately related. There is no such thing as a market without the state and there's no such thing as a state without commerce
0: yeah i think where my libertarian friends go too far is is the you can abandon 100 percent of the government and have a market system and then of course the solutions that they come up with i think are just a replacement for the government and just calling something different so uh, i i think we're we're in agreement that that, that there has to be some symbols of a government for sure um But to your point, you said a minute ago, um, the market's one way we interact. Uh, And you you touched on, um, I think the term you used was um, maybe maybe morality or morals. And so a lot of these questions, I think, are exactly right. Uh, You said that uh, in a hypothetical world, we could have a modern slave market. Well, we would all agree, hopefully, that that would be a bad thing. We would not want that. Um, So the questions around this, whether you should consolidate, shouldn't consolidate, those are obviously more questions, and then to your point about monopolies, how do we think about monopolies? Because we is it, you you said consolidation of power, and and I, I like I like that that thought process. Should we consider um, that only to be corporate consolidation, or should we consider that to be um, maybe some of these more obscure and lower? lower tier, if you will, uh, licensing boards that are consolidating power for, you know, get your nails done or, you know, being a barber or, or you know, whatever it is, should we, should we lump all consolidation of power together or is there a difference in your mind?
1: Well, so, you know, there, there are, I don't think that there's a, um, I don't think cons- like cooperation is necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a thing, right? And it's not necessarily right. So, so you could cooperate to build a new to build a steel factory and run it efficiently. That's a good thing, Absolutely. right? Yeah. You could uh, cooperate to fix prices in a way that is um, hold holding prices higher than they might otherwise be, and make make a lot of money. And that could be bad. You could cooperate if you're a shoemaker. With a bunch of other shoemakers on things like, well, what does a size seven shoe mean? What is the foot size? What is an eight, nine, ten? You could just standardize shoe sizes. That's a good form of cooperation, right? You could say, well, in um, farmers can get together since they're bargaining with a dairy co op, like a dairy processing plant or a poultry processing plant or something like that. And there's only one of them that they can use. And there's a bunch of farmers. And so they don't have any bargaining power vis-a-vis this processing plant. Well, they're allowed to get together and bargain collectively with that processing plant. Maybe that's a good form of cooperation. So I I don't, I'm not opposed to cooperate. I think we have to think about um, balances of power. And generally speaking, what you want is to make sure that um, you don't have uh, excessive concentrations of power, and it's there's a, there's a sort of more art than science. But what I am afraid of right now is um, that in America we have a, a concentration, corporate consolidation, corporate concentration is a systemic feature of our economy. And you go into any number of places, and what you'll find is that you know you just you have one entity that is making some vital or controlling some vital thing right so like most of our high-end semiconductors are made by taiwan semiconductor and that's super dangerous or most of our um black powder is made by one company in one factory black powder is like what you stick in artillery and bullets and stuff like that and that's really bad if that plant don't have any more black powder a lot of like You know different forms of cheap generic drugs are made by one entity it's not making that much money but like if it goes out of business or decides to shut down or has some sort of problem with with um, uh, quality then all of a sudden you get a shortage of the drug which we have we have hundreds of shortages of drugs right now so there's the consolidation of corporate power is dangerous and it is pervasive and it's the most important problem we're facing I think with some things like, you know, occupational licensing, which is what you talked about, where you have um, people who have to, like, get a license to, you know, fix hair or something like that. I don't think it's a very serious problem. And I also think it's way too easy to to basically say to people who are trying to raise their wages a little bit that they're not allowed to do that through, um, you know, through political cooperation. And I, I don't I think that's like a bad you know, that's a, that's a bad thing. Um, so I wouldn't, I'm not somebody who thinks that occupational licensing is a huge issue right now. I think it's more like a distraction from corporate consolidation, which is definitely a much more significant issue.
0: Okay. And and so on the corporate consolidation side, um, how much, if any, do you ascribe that to the access to cheap money uh, to government policy? Is it just mindset? How, what do you account for this corporate consolidation mentality?
1: Uh, I think it's policy. I mean, partly it's money. So partly it's that it's much easier to get money to engage in uh, mergers and acquisitions. Um, since it, you know, it didn't used to be that easy in the 70s, we invented a whole bunch of ways to do that, junk bonds and various financing mechanisms. Interest rates have, have gone up, so it's not quite as easy to do it now as it used to be. But it's also a, um, you know, there are just laws that say, you know, you're not allowed. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, the Clayton Act, um, you know, you may not merge if if the such a merger may substantially lessen competition. And just generally speaking, starting in the early 80s, enforcers change the way they defined substantially lessening competition from thinking about just consolid concentrations of power and saying, are there enough rivals in this market to purely our prices is going to go up if this merger happens. And that made it much easier to get mergers through. And so we saw consolidation in lots of areas of the economy. And that's, um, that's why we have a monopoly crisis. It's why a lot of prices are way too high, um, everything in healthcare is crazy expensive. Um, it's also why wages are much lower than they should be. Um, it's cause we changed our philosophy and how to enforce that, that change in philosophy. We've moved back. The new Biden enforcers are m- much more, um, uh, they're, they're much more old school in how they think about concentrations of power, the courts are not. So we'll see what happens, but, Mergers have really collapsed because of higher financing costs, but also because of changes in policy. And if this keeps going for another five, 10 years, the American economy will look much better. It will be much more competitive. Prices will be lower. There will be a lot more innovation, a lot better products if we can keep this up.
0: Okay. And so access to money and and policy, Um, why was there not more competition to begin with to make it easier to gobble up the competitors. So you know if you have a thousand competitors, it's almost impossible. But if you have like six, that's reasonable that you could acquire all of those. Why aren't there more competitors? Well well if I understood what you're saying, you said in the 80s moving forward, um, this consolidation started to happen. And it would seem that if there's if you went back before the 80s, just to pick a time period, um, and there were more competitors in the market, it would be harder to consolidate enough companies to become an oh, okay
1: so so one of the very recent one of the common trends that you find in um uh it, 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 over the last 30 40 years and it's accelerated is something called serial acquisitions where a company you know will buy dozens of of firms in the industry i mean you look at like google google's acquired 500 to 1000 firms since two thousand, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, are similar, but then you can look at like, um, you know, I'm sure you could, you could find. A, I forget. There's a there's a firm like, a Schlumberger, which does like oil services drilling. They've acquired, you know, they've acquired a huge number of firms. And then you you have um, now you have a whole financial model of private equity where, you know, there's this one company forget what it's called but they they just go around the country and they buy up street sweeping companies and they just they've bought up you know like two dozen or three dozen in the last two years so it's not necessarily the case that we don't have enough companies um and they've just like we only had in our industries we had you know oligopolies already those oligopolies were constructed right through these mass, Merger like waves. Another, I mean, you go back in history, like when we had the first big merger wave was in the 1890s. It was from like 1895 to 1902. This is when corporate America was created, companies like General Electric and Westinghouse and US Steel. I think US Steel was formed from a merger of like all, you know, metal oligopolies, like a metal oligopoly. It was three or four firms that came together, but those firms were formed out of hundreds of firms. So US Steel was the result of I don't know, a couple thousand companies in the in the mining and iron and steel fabrication industries. And you know, then it's all one company by 1901 or 1902, the first billion dollar company. And that's just generally the case with most of these firms, most of the big firms today, is they are roll-ups of hundreds of of, of other companies. And then a lot of the private equity firm like firms are also rollups.
0: Yeah. And so just to distinguish here um, you know, the VC model is a little bit different. They're taking kind of early stage companies uh, investing in them. Um, the PE model, as you mentioned, is, is to roll up. Right. I am a little sympathetic though, to the PE model on some level as i uh, sold a small business I'm going one right now there is a point where you go man okay <laughs> to to keep growing this thing or to to keep maintaining this thing is is just really tough it would be easier to to offload it to someone better and to get a payday and to go do something else or to retire or so how do you so there's there's definitely a monetary incentive there's just the fatigue incentive that some businesses need um I, I work with p groups now and so I know kind of some of the stories in some companies, they just get to a point to where to grow beyond where they're at. Um, it's a big jump and it's very hard to maintain it. So I'm not sure how would you de-incentivize or what would be the solution there?
1: So you're you're making, so if you want to retire, right, and sell your company, you need someone to sell it to, mm-hmm. right? Is that what you're or, saying? Or,
0: or let's say you're, let's say you're, I don't know, 45, 52, whatever. And you go, okay, you know, we've done X amount of revenue every year, and it's a a struggle, making a good living, it's a struggle, Um, to get to where we need to be for me to be able to, uh, you know, grow the business or whatever, something has to give. And that could be a a huge risk of a debt act, you know, take a lot of debt, uh, bring on more partners, or I could just exit the business for a nice margin and let someone else figure that problem out. And so it's that, that there's a lot of companies who get to that point of how do we go forward and that's an option. Instead of taking the risk of taking on more debt, it's better just to exit. So I, how would, and this is where the well, i mean, it, it, come into. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm sort of confused as to what you're, like you've presented a number of different situations. So why don't we just pick one?
0: Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, so yeah
1: you, of of the, tell, the, you the own a company, how, how big is the company? $5 million revenue? Yeah, let's what, pick
0: a $5 million revenue company, right?
1: Okay. Um Pool maintenance or so something like that, right? Yeah,
0: something like that, um, right?
1: I mean, I think the, you know, in you, you're 55, you've run it for 20 years, you want to do something else, or maybe you want to retire, you want to sell it, your kids aren't interested or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of businesses like that. Um, exactly. uh, or you want some growth capital, right? And mm-hmm. it's hard to, maybe you don't can't get that or something like that. Uh, I think we have a fine, I think we have a, one of the things that's happened in the American economy since really 1990, is the number of banks have declined dramatically. So it used to be 15,000 banks in 1990. It was about 15,000 banks from 1930 to 1990. And then because of the same policy framework of consolidation, we we now have about 3,800 banks. It's just been this roll-up of banks. And and the number of banks who can do commercial lending in any particular industry is, is pretty small. So if you it used to be, I'm going to make this up, but I would assume that there would be like a bank that really knows the pool industry and knows the people in it. And bankers would would know, okay, yeah, I can trust you. You have a good track record. I can lend you money. That's how business used to work. There would be banks that were good at dealing with the textile industry. There were banks that understood the defense industry. There were banks that understood different industries and could lend to them. That's how we organized our our finances. Um, And We started getting rid of those and so now we have this huge gap where people can't get growth capital private equity is is one of the few ways that you can get some growth capital and that's very that can be very expensive so we have a problem with financing and we we need to regrow a banking system um private equity you know i don't have a problem with private equity if it's um relatively small like I have a friend who was at a private equity firm that what they would do is they would they would find like business school students or, or sorry, business school graduates who were like wanted to do, wanted to make some money and they would finance that business school graduate to go off and find a $5 million firm from somebody who wanted to sell it because they had been running it for forever. They would stake that person. That person would take over the golf course maintenance firm or whatever and run it for a while and eventually like sell it. And that seems to me like a perfectly viable business model. It fixes a financing problem. Um, It it moves an asset from someone who doesn't want to run it anymore to someone who does and can improve it and grow it. But I think the issue is more that like you have private equity firms that are fairly large Mm -hmm. and what their goal is, is to take companies that are, you know, that other companies rely on, say like, a software company that makes software for gas stations, right? Uh, and their their goal is to is to buy that company, and and they know that the gas station just can't move off of that software, and so they'll just raise prices dramatically and stop doing quality uh, assurance. And they have a bunch of software companies like that. There are companies that have there are private equity firms that raise billions of dollars to just do that, and that's net destructive. Thing for the economy because you're harming all those gas stations or yoga studios or whoever uses that software, and um, I think that's a bad way to to run an economy. You need an alternative, and why wouldn't there be an alternative? We've had other ways of of financing firms before. Why don't we just find ways that aren't destructive?
0: Okay, and so to your point about the banking, we've consolidated banking. Um, consolidation is one problem. Um, why are there not more new banks coming to the table?
1: Yeah, I think that that there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, the regulators have been far too aggressive in terms of punishing uh, small banks and not making it easy to form new banks. That's That's been a problem, especially since the financial crisis. So I would say that uh, regulators, we need regulators to stop um, making it harder to start new banks. Uh, I, I mean, I also think that you should, you know, there there are, we need to, you know, fundamentally since the 80s, the U.S. banking policy has been to shrink the number of banks that we have and make them bigger. And and we still have that policy. That's why Silicon Valley Bank, hap- that, that crisis happened because the Fed basically pushed to make it easier for Silicon Valley Bank to grow. It was already a big bank. And we have these large banks, the the big ones that are too big to fail. They're essentially government. They're essentially government banks, except that they're run by a a civil servant that gets paid twenty million dollars a year and is named Jamie Dimon. Um, I think we need to make a policy. We need to make a formal policy change that the U.S. needs more banks, needs smaller banks, um, needs banks that do commercial lending, and instead of that are designed to um you know be too big to fail and um kind of project global us power instead of just serving commerce right and and I, we have to make that decision and when you make that decision there's a lot of things that go along with it one of them is you know make it easier to start smaller banks make it easier to get capital to start smaller banks make it easier for those smaller banks to make money doing useful things um instead of the way that it exists now where it's like to do if a regulator or examiner wants to look at a a bank they you know they can kick around the smaller banks because the smaller banks don't have any political power but the moment they try to do anything to a larger bank they can't and i think that's the dynamic that is downstream from our decision to ha- to to shrink the number of banks that we have
0: and this is i think what you said there is why the licensing board question is relevant because we there has to be a mentality of ease of access to the market um, and real repercussions for people who commit fraud. And, and so I think that when you look at the average Joe, they can't start a bank for a multitude of reasons right now. Um, and I'm not suggesting that they could if you deregulated it, but they could get more jobs that they could afford uh, to not go through all the licensing for various stuff. But then you say, well, the local entrepreneur who wants to start a bank, uh, he's entrenched in the community and he can't do it. So there's there's where policy licensing boards, which are just a result of policy, there's a there's a trend that seems to make consolidation.
1: That's not licensing board. That's that's just bank regulators. I mean, there are other issues, which is just that, like, yeah. I mean, the the bigger problem is it's that policy,
0: though, right? Those are both a, policy mandates.
1: Yeah, but it's not bank licensing boards. It's it's. Bank regulators, um, like the FDIC, and but the bigger issue is that 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 they the banks want to sell out to bigger banks so that they can get a payday, and that's a problem. They should that should not be. You should start a bank because you want to run a bank uh, and and service the commerce in your community and make money at that. And right now, bankers are just trying to cash in, and that. That is a problem. We need to make it clear that like if you run a bank, the idea is to make money by running the bank. Right. Um, and then we also want to have more banks. Right. It, but it's yeah, not it's just like it's you're you, you can't just put this at the regulators. The regulators are part of a policy framework that we've made, we've made the decision that like this is what we want regulators to do. So until we say we want more banks, then it's not going to happen, right? They're just going to be more consolidation, and we're not going to. And the regulators are not going to allow more banks to form because this is like the problem is they're following national policy.
0: And so, do you think that the uh, fractional reserve model that we're kind of under is conducive to having more smaller banks, or does it disproportionately impact the larger banks? Because it's it's a it's- well, I, I
1: i mean, I don't think fractional, I mean, we can go into banking. I mean, I just, I, I feel like, I, I feel like the answer is fractional and reserve banking is not the problem. Um, we just have made a policy choice. Like the Fed just doesn't like small banks. They find them annoying and they like to deal with big banks because like Larry Summers used to say, I want the Canadian banking model where they have five banks and they're regulated and no one else. And it's like, it's the same thing with like Walmart where... Our policymakers, some of them just like Walmart, like Jason Furman likes Walmart. One of the reasons these guys like Walmart is because if you want to change light bulbs in the country to make them more energy efficient, it's better to call Walmart and be like, sell different light bulbs. Don't sell the old you know, energy hogging ones, sell the new efficient ones, instead of having to call 5,000 stores and getting them to do stuff, right? They just find it easier to deal with one person than lots of people. Because they that they don't they like, you know, consolidated power is tempting. It's like it's easy to restructure a society if you have consolidated power. So that's really what this is about. And until we make a decision that, no, we don't want a small group of people to be making these decisions. That's, you know, we're going to continue to like be ruled by distant masters.
0: Well, I, I, I definitely don't want a small group of people making a decision. Um, so then who does make the decision? Because. The people in D.C. that make the decisions and are in Austin, Texas, where I live, or I live in Austin, but in Austin, where I live at, um, you know, who influences them are the people who do have the consolidated power. Um, and so.
1: No, I mean, they they respond to voters. Right. I mean, voters. Voters are very like well, the politicians like do largely what I mean, obviously, there's there's influence in different ways, but like the voters are not clear that they want an attack on monopolies. They just are not like some of them, you know, a lot of Democrats are saying, you know, Republican voters and Democratic voters are think about it differently. None of them like consolidation. What the issue with Democrats, Democratic voters is they don't care that much about it. They don't totally understand business, so they don't understand how this stuff works. But like when you bring it, when you put the question to them, clearly they clearly don't like consolidation. They're just a little bit confused. The Republican voters understand monopoly more And they hate monopoly. They just don't trust any institutions of government to do anything about it. So, that's the political problem that we have. And it's not that there's a group of people who are, like, you know, who are Machiavellian and are like controlling our elected leaders. That isn't how it works. Uh, If it if that were the case, it would be a lot easier. But fundamentally, if you believe well, there's a small group of people that control things and that voting doesn't matter, then the idea of doing politics doesn't really make any sense. And I just don't believe that. I think that, you know, I've seen it, you know, I've seen people really love Obama or really love Trump. And when you put forward policies that these guys did, they, did, they didn't know what they were, what their leaders were doing. And it does change their mind when they know, when they learn these things. Um, so, I i mean, I'm not, ai am not, I'm not a somebody who is, I'm not somebody who thinks that there are like Machiavellian forces that are running things. I think largely what's happening is the country is learning about monopoly and sort of changing. People are changing their minds. Um, And you're going to see that you're seeing that affect policymaking. Like we're getting more aggressive about questions of market power. You know, Trump did some stuff on tariffs. Biden's doing a bunch of stuff on industrial policy. Like the public wants something different and slowly they're getting something different
0: yeah i guess i would say i'm not thinking it's we're in the james bond movie either i think that the point that you you brought up there is um on some level i would say you know the voters like any voter um there's only so many issues you can care about uh, and a lot of stuff you don't you just can't study you can't be an expert in everything and it's hard to determine um, the impacts of all of these issues you talk about tariffs with china for instance well most of us aren't global supply chain experts or global business experts. And so it's really hard to think about how something like that would be good or would be bad. Uh, and part of the issue with some of these topics is because we are so politicized that if one side endorses the other side almost instantly can't endorse it. There has to be kind of this yin and yang approach, it seems to everything. So I do think the voters obviously have a have an ability. It is, to me, it is that the voters, to your point about will, the voters will is there's so many issues it's hard to prioritize which issue should be most important and are you willing to primary a candidate who doesn't stand on that issue and perhaps then lose your seat so how where does the monopoly issue rank for you uh for voters like what should this be on the ballot as they're considering how to vote for someone
1: well i mean i think that monopoly monopolization is the most important problem confronting the you know america today i think it's it's upstream from a lot of the social anger that people have just one example would be disney right happiest place on earth conservatives are super mad at disney uh for engaging in politics that they on social questions they don't like um the left in the form of unions in california are angry and new york are angry with disney for um controlling too much of the movie and tv market and not sharing enough with writers and uh, and not allowing enough creative control but fundamentally like the left and the right are both mad at disney because disney has too much power they don't agree like the right doesn't like what disney's doing with its political power and the left doesn't like what disney is doing with its political power and they probably would oppose each other about what should happen in terms of social questions. They would certainly oppose each other, but they do agree that Disney shouldn't be making the decision, right? So you do have an awareness, I think, on, and like a lot of people in, I wrote a piece on why Hollywood is too consolidated and it, it went viral and- You know, that has an impact. Um, people are learning, they are changing their minds. Um, you know, I think there really is a bipartisan frustration with consolidated corporate power. Um, you know, people can't track everything that's going on in politics, but, and by and large, I think most people hate politics. They think politics is annoying, but that's because politics to them is all of this garbage, like who's up and who's down in DC. And, you know, what is the the stupid thing that's going on with like texas you know this texas po- you know politician who said something outrageous and it seems like gossip gossiping about annoying ugly people and that's like that's what most people think of when they think of politics and that is boring and it is stupid and it is you know i do hate it but actual politics talking about how we run our businesses, how we run our lives is fascinating. And when you talk to people about that, they're like super interested. So I think part of this is about changing what how people think what politics is. Okay, makes sense.
0: Yeah, we are going to link to obviously the book um, on uh, Goliath, the hundred year war between monopoly, power and democracy. Uh, Obviously, you have a newsletter as well. Uh, your Twitter, and your website. Is there anywhere else you want us to link people to? And do you have any upcoming projects we should be looking for?
1: Well, I mean, I think one, so one, we did this report about the Obama administration's antitrust policy um, and and how, you know, they consolidate a bunch of different markets. We're looking at, we're right now, we're doing an analysis of what Trump did and just try to understand like the markets that, uh, what he did with a number of different areas. So Trump brought the first antitrust case against Google, which is really interesting. He also allowed Fox and Disney to merge, which is uh, so that one, that's one consolidation, one anti-consolidation thing. Um, Operation Warp Speed was really interesting in terms of what they did with with fostering competition. So we're trying to like do an analysis of that. I don't know when that's going to come out, but it's something that I'm excited about. Um, and yeah, there's like, I write about, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things happening in the merger space. I think this Gulf thing is going to become, I think that's going to fall. I mean, I already mentioned this at the beginning. I think, you know, that's something I'm going to be writing about a little bit. Um, I just wrote about, I mean, you know, there, there are drug shortages all over the place. There's a shortage of a particular drug that has to do with fertility. And I just wrote about that. The reason is there's, um, a fertility drug shortage right now is because of consolidated wholesalers. It's the same thing. There's an Adderall drug shortage for similar reasons. Um, so there's just all sorts of things happening in our economy that people are experiencing that are um, that are that you can trace to consolidated power. And what we try to do is explain to people why things are going on, and then voters and policymakers can make decisions about what what to do about them. Um, So that's our general strategy. That's what I generally write about.
0: Okay. Well, Matt, I enjoyed the discussion today. And just as an aside to you, listeners don't know this, but you were kind enough to reschedule a few minutes because I was running late. So thank you for that. Uh, Best of luck and love to get you back on in the future.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I had a good time.